All right, let's turn to Ephesians chapter 1. I want to go ahead and give you the questions for today. If, uh, if you're taking notes and, and uh, you want to respond with these, with these questions, let me, let me uh, give these to you now. Um, and these are just things that we, I come up with so that to help us think through the process as well as um, prepare us for, um, for our response time together. So let's go to the first question. First question is this. How has redemption been accomplished? Uh-oh. How has redemption been accomplished? That's question number one. Number two is, what is the outcome of being forgiven? What is the outcome of being forgiven? Question number three. How is redeeming grace impacting you? How is redeeming grace impacting you? Like I said, three questions to help us think through. So we have been covering a lot on uh, what is traditionally known as the doctrine of salvation. And by the way, Paul's intention once again, just as a reminder, is, is not for us to uh, build necessarily theological structures and, and a systematic theology. Um, we certainly can offer these texts, and that's what is being done, and that's right. But the intention of Paul, once again, is to show us the, the intention of God of how He has blessed us in Christ so richly. So the things that we are worshiping God for, the praises, the things that we rejoice in, are first and foremost these primary matters and these matters alone. So that's what we, we are doing. So we've, we've covered uh, such glorious things such as the, the doctrine, doctrine of unconditional uh, election. We've talked, about, uh, uh, we've talked about predestination. We've talked about adoption uh, thus far. We've talked about God's will. We've talked about His grace. And as we continue in this this, this glorious unpacking of salvation, we now see how, this, how those promises that God has made in, in electing and then saving and adopting, how those are accomplished so richly for us. And so today, in covering verses 7 and 8, which we will read in just a minute, we, we are going to cover a, 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 some big topics once again. We're going to talk about redemption, we're going to talk about forgiveness, and we're going to talk about grace. Redemption, forgiveness, and, and grace, which was, you saw that in your three questions uh, as, I, as I said those. Now, stories of redemption uh, run throughout our culture. Um, the, and, and they are uh, by, by far some of the, the greatest stories that are ever told. And, and they're stories that we, we love. We, we love stories of, of, of redemption. And the reason is, is because we can relate to them and we can understand them. Even though it may be something on a, a much massive, grand scale, it, it's something that we still can relate with. And, and Hollywood and popular culture has, has, has tapped into this idea of redemption. Of, of redemption. We, we, we love stories of the bad guy who once was bad and then becomes good and sacrifices himself for the greater good of a colony or a ship or whatever it is, they sacrifice. We, we love those stories. And some of those, some of those movies that I was thinking of was um, uh, uh, the movie Ben-Hur. I don't know if you all ever seen that. It's like, that's like Hollywood classic, a great movie. Um, uh, and now I'm going to really step down as it comes to the classics. And, and I'm going to talk about Field of Dreams is like that, isn't it? The movie Field of Dreams. I love that movie. I, I love it. Um, uh, the movie a, a Christmas Carol. Right? Christmas Carol, or the book. Actually, it's a book by Charles Dickens. But, but, but there it is, right? There's Ebenezer Scrooge trying to bring a redemption about. Once he was evil, now trying to be, be good. Um, an, another movie that was also a, a book was The, the Kite Runner. Um, that one's very much intention to the idea of, of, of redemption uh, for, for someone. Um, and, and we all like the hero. We all like the hero that sacrifices 
And the reason why we love these stories, these, these great themes, and the reason why Hollywood has tapped into it, number one, so they can make money, but it draws us to them because there's something in all of us that knows we need redemption. That, that we need redemption. That we can see ourselves in that, that character that once, was, that once was bad, maybe not on the levels that they may show and portray, but, but we also know the need to be forgiven and the need to be redeemed. And yet what we've seen in Scripture, including up to what we're going to see today, is that the greatest story of redemption is found in Jesus Christ. And so what, what Hollywood has tapped into, into that inner need, Christ has fulfilled. What they are exploiting, Christ has fulfilled. Christ has brought redemption for us. It's the perfect story of of redemption. Now, the story of redemption, the story of the cross, I'm kind of preaching my Easter sermon here because of the text, by the way. Uh, we'll have a great Easter sermon, but, but this, is, this is kind of like Easter this morning, right? Now, we've, we've heard this story, every single one of us, we've heard the story time and time again. This message has been preached time and, and time again, yet there's some of us who grow, who grew up in this kind of church context, hurting over and over again that Jesus died on the cross for me. But really, if you did an honest evaluation of your heart, the movies of redemption stir your heart far greater than the cross does. It's almost like we've, we've heard this message so many times. We've, we've heard this information so much that it's just like reading the newspaper that in many ways we just become inoculated to this great story of redemption. That it's just another one among many. Jesus was a good guy. He died for us. You don't know why. It's like a, it's like a really nice beautiful, expensive gift that someone gave you that you really don't want and you have no use for. You take it because you want to be friendly. And here's the story of redemption that Christ has done for us. So here, in, here to the church in Ephesus, to, to the Gentiles who have no understanding of the foreshadow of redemption of the Old Testament, Paul lays out here redemption for them. Because they understood the common need of all mankind, including us, and that is a need for redemption and forgiveness and the atoning work for our sin. Let's read together, starting in verse 1. <clears throat> we'll go through verse 8. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him, in love He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. That's where we're going to stop today. Now, Israel is familiar with the story of redemption, as we will be in the next couple days when uh, the Ten Commandments comes on television. The first, one of the greatest stories of redemption is, is, is brought right there in the story of Exodus, where, where the Lord ransomed Israel from slavery out of Egypt. When there were millions of Jews in slavery and bondage, they were captive to serve the Pharaoh who was the most powerful person, as they were the most powerful country in the world at that time. He was so powerful that, that they considered him a, a, a God to be worshipped. And so the Lord 
at the right appointed time, the Lord sent Moses to Pharaoh. So it sent Moses to Pharaoh to, to let his people go. I like saying that loud. Let my people go, right? To let his people go. And, and, and we remember the story that repeatedly, time and time again, Pharaoh hardened his heart. Actually, if you read the text, it says God hardened his heart. That's a whole nother can of words, right? We'll deal with that. That's awesome, right? That re- he refused to listen and he refused to release the slaves. So God poured judgment upon that nation. And we know that judgment because we remember it of the, of the ten plagues, the ten various plagues to humble such a great nation. And we remember the tenth, the tenth plague was the worst of them all. The, the, the most difficult one of, of all. And the tenth plague was this, was, to, was that God's wrath was going to be poured out on the, on the firstborn child of everyone in Egypt, including those who were of Israel. And God gave a provision. God gave a provision for the nation of, of Israel, an atonement, a, a substitute that was found in a, in a pure and spotless lamb where they would sacrifice that lamb and they would take the blood from this perfect, spotless lamb, this baby, and they would spread it over the doorposts as a marker of that this home has been atoned. And that the Spirit of God that was coming to, to kill all of the firstborns would, would pass over that home. And then we see here a picture in that substitute, in that sacrifice, the atoning work of God to redeem His people, to bring His people, to free them from their slavery. Their, their physical bonds, to free them from their physical bonds and to now live for their King, to live for their God. And this story of redemption, as thing we know, has set up the, the Feast of the Passover. And, and this Passover was the, the, the feast that was celebrated, the time that was celebrated, that foreshadowed what Christ was going to do. Now, Paul didn't go through all this with the people in, in, in Ephesus because, you know what, they weren't Jews. And, and, and he, didn't, he didn't find that necessary to give a, a history of, of, uh, of the story of, of redemption. But the people in Ephesians also had an idea of what it means to be redeemed as well. Culturally, in the Roman Empire, there was estimated over 6 million slaves. Physical, in bonds, Slaves, like when we think of slavery, that's what they had, right? Servants that were enslaved to a person, to another, to another family, right? And, and everything that goes along with that. And if a person wanted to be freed from slavery, they had to be bought. They had to be redeemed. They had to be ransomed for them to get any kind of freedom, to have freedom from their bonds, they understood slavery. And this is the reality of redemption for the Ephesians, as well as the reality for us, is that they understood physical slavery. And we may not understand that. We can read that in the history books, but the slavery that all mankind faces and the plight that they face from birth is that we are enslaved to a greater master. And that greater master is sin itself. It's a, it's a master that, that cannot be freed by any price that you could pay. There's nothing that we could do that can bring that about. We are all enslaved to our sin. We are all slaves to our sin. Jesus said it like this in John 8.38. He said, Truly, truly, I say to you, meaning this is for real, this is the truth, I'm going to say it twice, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. And that when we are born, we are born with the nature that is given to us by our first father, Adam. A nature that only leads us to judgment and wrath by God. 
Ephesians 2, which is where we're going to get a little bit ahead of just right now, and this is what Paul unpacks it a little bit more. Ephesians 2, verse 1, he says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, when you walked, which you once walked. Or here he is, he's talking to the church, talking to all of us here. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, and once you, which you once walked, following the course of this world following the prince of the power of the air and the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This is an all-encompassing nature of all of mankind. Children of wrath. Wickedness, sons of disobedience, following the spirit of the air, which is the evil one. We are slaves. And we are in such slavery that you don't even know it. That the rest of mankind, we, you don't even know it. That is how blind we are. That is how good we are at suppressing the truth. And we don't even know it. We need a spiritual awakening, a spiritual redemption from this slavery. Brother Bill says it a lot. He says spiritual matters are discerned spiritually. Spiritual matters are discerned spiritually. And, and this is a spiritual matter that is discerned spiritually. Until then, our hope and identity is only found in our own works, in our own desires to try to find satisfaction, to try to redeem ourselves until the Spirit of the Lord brings redemption and forgiveness. It's only then can we be free and redeemed. In this text, we also see once again that who our Redeemer is identified as. Our Redeemer is identified as Him. Christ. It's Christ. And here we, well, just over and over again, and I, I don't know if I've said it since we've, we've, I mean, it says it so many times, in Christ, in Him, before Him, in the Beloved, and it just goes over and over again in the text. And what he is saying here, particularly here, is that there is an exclusivity in redemption meaning that our redemption and our salvation only comes through Christ. Now that sounds like I'm preaching to the choir. We don't have a choir. But it sounds like I'm preaching to people who've heard that before. But once again, what needs to be exposed over and over again in our hearts and why we need to hear this over and over again because we are still a people that wants to trust in the flesh. We hear all the good things about God's grace, but then we want to say, but. And we want to add something. We want to, we want to bring something there to that. Like I've, I, like, I've grown up in church, or my, my parents are, are, are believers, and, or my grandmother, or there's a, there's a grave somewhere at a distant church out in the country where my family is buried. And we want to cling to these little things that have no bearing or no weight to our redemption, but only Christ. Our salvation is only and exclusively found in Jesus Christ, our Redeemer. And just like the song, I will glory in my Redeemer. That's why we sang that song. <laughs> the glory in my Redeemer. The Redeemer is Him, and the redeemed are we. Verse 7, we. In Him, we. Now, who is this? what does this mean, we? Who does that encompass? Well, encompass, who is he talking to? He's talking to the church. He's talking to, to us. He's talking to the church. And, and more specifically, if we, if we kind of look back at the reality of the foundation of, of salvation, he's talking to, to the elect, to those who are in Christ, the church, we, the saints. Brothers and sisters, that is who he is talking about. Us, we. And as we were reminded in, in chapter 2, and we'll be reminded when we go to chapter 2 again in our study here, 
is the reminder of this, that the we were just like all of mankind. That wickedness abounds inside of church walls, buildings, as outside. And to neglect that fact is to belittle the sacrifice and redemption of Christ. The we. The we. The undeserved free grace of God in redeeming us. I, I, I like it this way said that that even at your best, even at your best, you still needed someone to redeem you. That even at your best, you still needed Christ to redeem you. And this is the reminder of the Gospel that we need, not only every week, but it's the reminder that we need daily. That you are redeemed only in Christ. Let me say that again, that you were only redeemed in Christ. That it's in Him, in Christ, in the Beloved. So we see the Redeemer. We see the redeemed. Now let's look at the redemptive price. The redemptive price. Now, to define redemption quickly... Is this is, is meaning that we have mean that God has paid the price as a ransom for us, that we were slaves to sin, and Christ and or God in His grace paid that price for our sin. He paid the due the due price for our sin. Romans six seventeen through eighteen puts it like this. He says, "But thanks be to God." Right? He always talks about it in worship here. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves to sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been, been set free from sin, have now become slaves to righteousness. Our redemption. Galatians 3.13 says it like this, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Christ became that curse for us. Galatians 5.1 I love this text. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm therefore and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Colossians 1, catching the theme here, Colossians 1, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. There has been a great disservice that has taken part in the church and particularly that started really big in in this past 20th century. And, and, and that was to, to prolong the idea or to teach the idea that, that you are good. That, that there's something in you that's, that's good. Right? And I'm not saying that you can't do good things. Right? Let's, you can absolutely be a lost person and still do good things. There's a lot of people who do good things who are spending an eternity in hell. There's a lot. And this, this idea that has been taught to us so subtly that we don't even know it, and this is why the cross has so little bearing to so many of us, and it's such a tragedy because we don't understand the state in which we once were. We've belittled text that we once walked in darkness, that we were slaves. Paul uses these language very intentionally. He says you were dead in your sins. That's very intentional language for you to understand the the brevity of the death we once were in and the life that we need. And this tragedy of such subtle, weak, ineffectual theology 
has damaged us. Has damaged us. It has led, it has led us to make excuse for our own sin. It has led us to, to, to make excuses why I can't forgive someone. It has led us to, to excuses of, 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 of belittling the church and others and making this whole thing about moi, us. Weak sauce, man. Weak sauce. It is only when we see our actual real condition and you see your need as Peter who is sinking in that water until you see that great need of the drowning state that you once walked in. It is very hard to see the glorious picture of the cross and the grace of God in such ways that Paul is saying rejoice in Praise God in. I glory in. And the price of redemption, the price of redemption, you see it there, redemption through His blood. To pull us off this slave market to sin, it costs the Son of God His very blood. The price that He paid, the sacrifice that He paid, was His very life crushed on the cross on behalf of sinners, behalf of those who once walked in darkness, on behalf of those who would choose slavery than life. And it is only in the cross through the, the shedding of His blood that sinners can be justified before God. That sinners can be justified by God, which means that sinners now get a, a new legal status, that you are no longer guilty, but you have now been brought to the state of innocent. The state of innocence. And once again, why? Because we've committed cosmic treason against God. A cosmic treason against God. It's, it's, it's not the level by which we, we sin that makes us guilty, but it is who we have sinned against that makes us guilty. And who we have sinned against is an infinite holy God. And the wages of those sins is death, Romans 6.23. And God just didn't overlook sin to, to adopt you and ignore His holiness and ignore His, His justice because that would make Him unjust. And God is not unjust. And that is why Christ had to die. His blood had to be shed. As the slitting of the throat of the Lamb, the Son of God was crushed and His blood was spilt on behalf of sinners. On behalf of sinners, Isaiah 53 Verse 5 says, But He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His wounds we are healed. All we like sheep, we've gone astray, we've turned every one to His own way. And the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. Our substitute, Christ our substitute for our justification. And in our justification was this great need for our propitiation. Now, there's a lot of words that I don't really care for you guys to learn about, the big theology words, but I want you to learn that word. I think it's the most important word in all the Bible, besides maybe Jesus' name, right? It's propitiation. So we're going to say it together. Ready? One, two, three. Propitiation. I don't care if you can spell it. Do your best there. Propitiation. That is a huge word. It's one of the most important words in all, the, in all the New Testament. And this is what it means. Because Christ is our substitute. He was substituted in our place. He absorbed God's wrath on our behalf. He absorbed all the anger of God. And, this, and in that, because of Christ's perfect atoning sacrifice as being the perfect pure and spotless lamb, all of God's wrath has now been removed from us and has been placed upon His Son that was done completely and finished on the cross. 
propitiation. The wrath of God being satisfied. The wrath of God being satisfied. And that's why I can say things like I kind of said last week about being adopted, being forgiven and such, that, that God loves us, that those things are not overlooked. Like he doesn't ignore it like a, like a dad who spoils their kids, right? But he's dealt with it. And he has dealt with it in his son. And so when he calls you his son, he has drawn you into his family because of what Christ has done. And he can love us. Redemption is accomplished. And when redemption is accomplished, we now have forgiveness. The forgiveness of our sins. The forgiveness of our trespasses. And this is what Christ did. In, in, in Christ taking our sins through the shedding of His blood, He took the sins of us once again, and He infinitely carried them away so that they never would return. He carried them away. Now let's, let's, kinda, let's get our timeline straight when it comes to our sin, when it comes to Christ's death. When Christ died on the cross... It was approximately 2,000-ish years ago, right? A.D. 33-ish. Christ died on the cross, right? For the redemption through His blood, for forgiveness of our trespasses. That took place at a moment of time in history, didn't it? A moment of time. And if that was for our forgiveness and for our redemption... Does that mean our sins that we committed in the future have been forgiven? Absolutely. Absolutely. That means if we are in Christ, if you are in Christ, every one of your sins, and I'm saying this through what we see through the authority of Scripture, that every one of your sins in the past, the present, and the future has been atoned for and forgiven. Do I need to say that again? That every sin you have ever committed, every sin that you have committed this morning, every sin that you will commit today and this afternoon, every sin that you commit until the day the Lord calls you home, if you are in Christ, is perfectly forgiven. The guilt you carry and the shame you carry is because of the evil one who wants to tempt you to fear and to doubt God's love for you to make you run. God has built in you shame and guilt so that you would run to Him and not from Him. That's what it's for. It's to run to Him. And so when we see texts like this the, and the accomplishment of our forgiveness of our sin, Romans 8.1 now makes so much more sense. Therefore now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. No condemnation. No condemnation. Forgiven. The basic need for all human beings, the basic things that we all want, everybody wants to be forgiven. Everybody. Well, I was going to make a political joke, but one person. Everybody needs to be forgiven. That's why I told you in the beginning, culture tapped into it with movies, and we like the Redeemer. And this is it. The Lord no longer holds our sin against us. And it's not just because you've sinned so greatly, because we have. We can sit here and we can have a competition. But what it really points to is the greatness of the sacrifice of the Son of God. The greatness of the sacrifice of the Son of God. He has forgiven our sins as far as the east is to the west. You guys have heard that, right? Psalm 103.12. Old Testament, Christ fulfilled that perfectly. He accomplished that perfectly. 
and that he's done it according, he has forgiven us the trespass of our sins according to the, to the riches of his grace. According to the riches of his grace. Let me, let me illustrate this real quick of how we are forgiven by the riches of his, of his grace. If, if we found a, a, a great new charity we were starting or whatever it may be, and, and we found a, a millionaire in our community, and we asked that millionaire to contribute to this, to this awesome work of charitable giving or whatever it is, right, where, where it was just going to be a, a great charity. And, and this, this millionaire writes you a check for 25 bucks, right? That's a gift, right? 25 bucks, that's, that's good, right? That's a, that's, a, that's a contribution given to this particular charity. But that would be giving, that would be, giving out of his riches, right? Now, if the millionaire was going to give you 50 grand, that's a lot more, right? If he gave you 50 grand to this particular charity, that's giving out of the according to the riches. That's according to to his, his, his riches. And if he gave us 25 bucks, you kind of make you doubt a little bit. Is the guy really even rich? But if he gave according to the riches, to his riches, then we know this guy is wealthy. I mean, he can give 50 G's and nothing. Like, doesn't hurt him. According to the riches of his grace. And this is how God has given us. He has given according to the riches of of His grace, the wealth of His abundant grace. And he, and he goes on to describe it even more, right, by saying that He lavished it upon us. That He lavished it upon us, right, with, in an infinite way, without measure, overabundant, lavishing, And what this means, what this means is that our sin, this means that our, our sin will never outweigh grace. Where we continue in sin, grace may abound all the more. That's what that means. That He has given so richly and lavished upon you so richly that it outweighs Everything. We can never sin beyond God's grace. And when we forget about God's lavished grace, when we don't highlight God's grace, His sovereign grace, when we, don't, when we don't look at this, this is when we forget. Right? This is when we forget and we start to believe that, you know, that we're actually not as bad as we think. We don't repent when we sin. we begin to forget the basic joys of the gospel that is given to us here in this text. The adoption, the redemption, the forgiveness, the election. And we begin to search out for, for our own type of, of saving grace. And we look for our identity in other places. And we try to find security in other things. We try to find our hope in other things. We try to find our well-being in other places, whether it be the world or the, the media or our friends or relationships or, or family or even our own children. We begin to try to find purposes in these things when we forget God's lavishing grace. Only in this deep grace that can only be found vertically can only be found vertically in Christ. In this grace that he has lavished upon us, if you are in Christ, listen to me here, that this grace is already yours. This grace is, is already ours. The fight of faith, the, the fight of faith every day, why this is so difficult to believe, is every day. It's the fight of faith. We have, to, we have to fight for it. We have to believe it. We have to preach this grace to ourselves daily. And even deeper, a quote here by Paul Tripp in a book that I'm reading right now called Dangerous Calling. He said this, he said, The gospel declares that, that there's nothing 
that could ever be uncovered about you and me that hasn't already been uncovered by the grace of Jesus. Let me read that again. The Gospel declares that there is nothing that could ever be uncovered about you and me that hasn't already been covered by the grace of Jesus. Now, why this fear and unbelief? Why? Why this fear and unbelief if, if God's grace is this great? Why, what are we afraid of? And this grace, this grace is, 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 is working out for us also every day. Is working out for us in, the, in the, the practical sense where we start to believe more and more our redemption and our justification and, and in our forgiveness. We, we learn it every day in our walk with Christ and our sanctification. We're growing in this. We're, we're growing in these, in these ways because we want to believe it more and more. We preach these things. We remind ourselves of God's grace daily. We remind ourselves of the redemption that is only through the blood of Christ, the forgiveness of our sins. And we use that truth to put to death the deeds of the flesh. And that's what frees us to live for Christ. Frees us, frees us now to, to love one another, to forgive one another. It frees us to not be in competition with one another. It frees us to, to, to love one another. It frees us to forgive one another. And He has given us wisdom and He has given us insight. Wisdom of the life and death of Christ life and death, wisdom of, of, of our need for redemption, wisdom of the, the righteousness of, of God, the wisdom of our sin nature, the wisdom of heaven and hell, the, the wisdom of eternity and times past. And He has given us insight. Insight with such grace that gives us the, the comprehension of, of those needs, of those problems that we have or we see in the world or in our church that we can address. And we put the work of this grace, we put, to, we put this grace to work in our life. So redemptive grace. Really quickly, I have six, six things I want to share with you about redemptive grace and we'll be done. Redemptive grace. Grace always has at the front, always has at the front the cost of their redemption and forgiveness. Grace always has at the front the cost of their redemption and forgiveness. This is the reminder of ourselves of the gospel. It's the reminder of, of, of the cost of our redemption. When, when you're tempted to sin, when you're tempted to, to give in to, to a fear, when you're tempted to give in to, to a lust, when we're tempted to give into to an, uh, an anger, if the forefront of our mind is the redemption and the cost of that forgiveness, it is much easier to put to death that sin than not. Why are we given to sin so easily? Why are we so subdued to sin so quickly? Why does it feel like maybe we're still enslaved to sin? Maybe it's because we're not clinging to the grace of God in this way and believing the cost of your redemption and your forgiveness. Let's keep grace at the forefront. Let's keep our redemption at the forefront and our forgiveness at the forefront. Number two, grace far outweighs a condemning guilt and leads us into joy in Christ. Grace far outweighs condemning guilt and it leads us into joy in Christ. This is what grace does. If our, if our life is driven by grace, then, then the guilt that is there to condemn you is far outweighed. And when it's far outweighed, that leads us into joy. 
We talk about joy a lot. You want to find joy? You want to find joy? Be grace-driven. Be grace-driven. Number three. I've said this previously, but grace frees us to forgive no matter the cost. What things are we holding on to? What offenses that we, that we believe that we are justified in holding on to? That we, ourselves, right? That we have a right to hold on to. If Christ has forgiven us and has paid this price, this cost of redemption for our forgiveness, what right do any of us have to hold? And, and notice what I said as well. No matter the cost. No matter the cost. And I know what I'm saying there. <laughs> I understand the deep hurt that, that we might have felt and had in our lives. I understand the deep abuses that might have taken place at the hand of thought of someone who thought you loved you. I understand that. But what freedom is there in holding on to things? What slavery is that? I'm not saying return to it. That's not what the Lord says in forgiving others. It's to return to it. But grace, God's grace, frees us to forgive no matter the cost. And in that forgiveness, it compels us. That's why we have in our, in our covenant the words that we have about going to one another, asking for forgiveness when we might have offended someone, or if, you, or, or, if, uh, or if they've offended you and they don't even know about it. You would go to them and you would say it, and so that you can give them a chance to, to ask for forgiveness for the hurt. Why? Because we have been saved by such glorious grace, and none of us have a right to hold on to anything. Nothing. If anyone had any right to hold on to a grudge, to get angry, to get bitter, it's Christ. And yet we know the words resounded at the cross, forgive them for they know not what they do. Number four, grace compels us to confess and repent before a brother and sister. I already touched on that one, but it's always compelling us to, to confess and repent before one another. That if, that if uh, the God's grace, coming back from that quote right there by, by Paul Tripp, if, if God's grace and Christ's grace that He gave to us has already uncovered that sin and also has covered it with His grace, what right then to any of us that we have to, to hold on or to belittle that person or to make them feel bad about their sin if Christ is already forgiving them? And so grace in our midst, in our community that we are, we are building here by God's grace compels us to confess our sin and repent before one another. I, I, I firmly believe this, that we will never be really truly free if we're not confessing our sin to one another. Not to live in it. Not to compete in it. Not, not to boast in it. I've heard that. Not to boast in it. But to bring it to light. To drag what wants to live in the darkness to the light. So that the faithful may pray for one another. There's no condemnation here. Condemnation was paid. Number five, grace gives us wisdom and insight for holy living and joyful obedience. Grace gives us wisdom and insight for, for holy living and, and joyful obedience. Our obedience is, is, is given as a way for us to exercise God's grace. To exercise God's grace. Our, our holiness is motivated by God's grace. And number six, you, we can just kind of continue with these, by the way. I mean, we, if, if I had more time, I probably can come up with a hundred of these things. So you have to come up with some more. But, but grace, number six, grace moves us to take risks and to sacrifice to take the gospel to the nations. Redeeming grace 
redeeming grace and forgiveness of our trespasses and the abundant riches of God's grace. God's grace isn't just for us, but it is for us to take to the nations. It is for us to take to the nations. The grace that we speak of this morning is, is, is a grace that is only going to change, change, transform your life. It is the only grace that is going to transform your life. It is the only grace that is going to satisfy your soul. It is the only grace that our dying world needs. And that's it. One last quote and we'll be done. Gotta, always got to have a good Calvin quote every couple weeks at least. And he asked this question in, in light of, in, actually in light of these passages. He said, where else is it that man can look for satisfaction when all else pales in comparison to the riches of the grace of God? I'm glad Calvin got an amen. <laughs> if it doesn't redeem you, if it doesn't save you, then guess what? It's vanity. It's just vanity. It's just as unreal as the movies that portray redemption. It pales in comparison. Where else can we look to find satisfaction, brothers and sisters, saints, than to the one who has redeemed us through the great sacrifice of his blood, the substitutionary atonement of his son, for the propitiation of our sins, to satisfy the wrath of God toward you, but in Christ. Only in Christ. And so my hope and prayer this morning is that we would marvel in such things. We would repent of sin. We would repent in our, our, our need to be performance-driven instead of being grace-driven. And we would repent of not trusting in grace. Or maybe even repent of our sin and turn toward Christ this morning. To trust in Christ this morning. Let's pray. Father, I pray you help us to reform our hearts and minds this morning as we, as you and your Spirit cause us to respond. Help us to be open and free with, with one another as we have been hopefully open and free with you, O oh Lord. Confessing our sins. Thank you for the greatness of redemption, the forgiveness of our sin that is only found in Jesus Christ. A need by which we all have. I pray that you would remind us of this part of the Gospel daily that we may cling to your grace. Knowing that there's no limit to it. There's no overextending it. There's no overdraft of your grace, God, but you have given according to your riches which you have lavished on us. We give you the glory for all things. Help us to find joy in Christ and in his atoning work on the cross. In Jesus' name, amen.